Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Hello, listeners of this podcast. In keeping with us generally always being behind schedule, this podcast was recorded before the last weekend, which was a very bad one. So if you're wondering why we don't reference the shootings in Orlando, that's why. I imagine they will come up in the next episode. Thank you for listening, and DFTBA. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where me and my brother John, we answer your questions, we give you dubious advice, and we bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon, a third-tier English soccer club. I'm not tired of hearing that, Hank. I believe it. I gotta update the description of Dear Hank and John, and I'm not entirely sure how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, because it says we talk about a fourth-tier English soccer team, but we don't anymore. It's almost as if there was a planet discovered between Earth and Mars. We'd have to edit the <laughs> podcast description as well. But uh, it turns out that uh, AFC Wimbledon, uh, much more changed than Mars. No offense to Mars. Uh yeah, no, agreed. There is kind of a planet between Mars and Jupiter, but that's not going to help anything. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well. I'm having a little bit of an existential crisis as a result of a book I'm reading that was recommended to me by our father called Sapiens. Are you familiar with this book, Hank? I am. I just received it in the mail from our father. It's a great, uh, really interesting history book, but I cannot in good faith recommend it because it has sent me into an absolute spiral uh, of fear and loathing. Fear and loathing? I, I feel, as Robert Penn Warren once famously wrote, uh, that I am a bubble on the tide of empire. More than ever, I, I feel that uh, I am not making any of the choices that are supposedly mine, but instead am just, uh, you know, a tiny dot in a much larger pointillist painting uh, that is being shaped by forces far, far larger than myself. It's interesting to me that that's not how you felt previously. Well, I have little moments where I feel like I have something approaching proper free will, but <laughs> no longer. That's that's ended now. I, uh, yeah, actually, uh, we just recorded an episode of Crash Course Philosophy on free will. And uh, in general, the, uh, the philosophical uh, agreement is that we don't, we just don't. There's, it's very difficult to, uh, once you, once you, start down that rabbit hole to come to a conclusion that indicates that that we actually have any choice in the matter. However, it feels like we do, and that's the important thing. Mm, I'm not sure that is the important thing, actually. 
<laughs> I feel uh, uh, no. You know, I, as I've gotten, it's interesting because as I've gotten older, I find myself less and less convinced by the acts of my so-called volition, and I feel more and more like, uh, you know, people don't wield power so much as power wields people. Oh my. Well, that's not really what I was talking about, but um, maybe we should have a poem before we just start talking about existentialism for the entire episode. All right. This is another haiku from Richard Wright. I'm a huge Richard Wright fan, and uh, he's written a lot of good haikus over the years. You moths must leave now. I am turning out the light and going to sleep. All right. So the real... You love that one, Hank, because it's short. Hold on. Let me crack open a delicious Diet Dr. All Pepper. Right. Oh, my goodness. Oh, is there a better sound on I thought Earth? we were going to stop with the Dr. Pepper stuff. Why would we stop with it? It's delicious. I love I love drinking Diet Dr. Pepper. Okay. I see. I see. Well, you just continue with the loving Dr. Pepper. But we won't mention whether or not we would like Dr. Pepper to sponsor. No, I don't want Dr. Pepper to... I, I don't actually want Diet Dr. Pepper to sponsor us. And now that Diet Dr. Pepper follows me on Twitter, I feel that we've kind of flown too close to the sun on this one. And I'm getting very anxious <laughs> that Diet Dr. Pepper yes. might actually offer me money. And then I would have to turn them down because my stupid brother doesn't allow me to take uh, sponsorships. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So we have to turn off the light so that the moth... Uh, that is Diet Dr. Pepper will go home. That is correct. We have got to turn off those lights to keep those Diet Dr. Pepper moths <laughs> from floating about, dear <laughs> Hank and John. All right, John. I have a question that uh, I wasn't actually intending to ask, but uh, it became so apropos while we were having this conversation at the beginning of the podcast. It's from Ellen who asks, Dear Hank and John, Elon Musk said in an interview that we are probably all simulations of people rather than actual people. I feel weird when I think about this. Does this mean that my choices matter less because they aren't real? Or does it mean that my choices matter more because they matter not only to me, but to whatever entity is observing slash experiencing what I do? Do you have any advice for how to feel about possibly being a simulation of the person that I thought that I was? <laughs> well, I wouldn't worry too much about it, is my advice. Um <laughs> Yeah. Though John is worrying quite a lot about it right now due to a book he's reading. It's it's hard not to worry about. The problem is that it's just not particularly useful to worry about. Hank, are you familiar with um, the Turtles All the Way Down thing? Yes. No, I think you've talked about the Turtles All the Way Down on this very podcast. I For me, it's just a, for me, the question <laughs> of whether we are a simulation is a Turtles All the Way Down type of issue. It is uh, It is not something that can lead to productive lines of thought. And I'm not sure... As like, I'm I'm not sure that it's worth thinking about things we can't fix. Yeah, um, we we just we just recorded an episode of Crash Course Philosophy about this topic. Uh, it has not it has not come out yet, um, but it will. So I suggest that you go watch Crash Course Philosophy, where we talk we'll talk about uh, determinism and free will and whether free will exists and all of the ways in which we have made those arguments over the years. Uh, it, in some ways, it doesn't even matter whether or not it's a simulation, um, because even if it weren't, uh, there are there, there are you know logical uh, trains that you can follow that will lead you to the to the realization that uh, just based on how the Big Bang happened today was inevitable. Um, 
that's a very difficult thing to come to terms with. I do feel like I'm making choices all the time. Uh, you know, many of the things that I do are, not, are clearly not choices, but many of the things that I do are. And I do feel as if I make those choices. And I think that the way that we experience the world is in many ways the most important thing rather than the way the world actually is. Uh, and I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know that everybody's going to agree with me on that, but that is what I have come to believe. Done. Yeah, I mean, there's different kinds of realness, right? I mean, there's the realness of, uh, you know, there's the realness, for instance, of the theory of relativity. Like, uh, we know that these laws govern the, the natural world. And then there's the realness of, like, the limited liability corporation or laws against murder. Like, those <laughs> things are constructed, but they are also quite real, you know? Yeah. Uh, they're real because we all believe in them together, but that doesn't mean that they're not real. And I think we have to be very careful about the things that we believe in together, the, the things that we choose to make real by force of our believing in them. But I think we will always have those things, whether they're gods or corporations or laws against murder. We have to have those kind of shared beliefs. Those are the things that I'm worried about. Uh, I guess if we collectively decided that we were living inside of a simulation, that would have a big impact on the human story. But I don't think that's a likely... <laughs> shared belief and i don't think it would necessarily be a very helpful one um yeah i, I kind of feel a little bit like elon musk is just uh, just making the gamble uh and saying like i'm gonna go ahead and say that we live in a simulation potentially we do and if we do maybe the person who's watching can be like oh elon musk he does so many interesting things in my simulation including realizing that he's in it <laughs> oh what a great guy uh, yeah. And that makes Elon Musk feel good about himself. Right. It's like Pascal's wager, right? <laughs> Except it's Elon Musk's wager. Yeah. He's betting that we're in a simulation and he just really impressed somebody. <laughs> There's some 11 year old boy in some kind of super universe who's just like, oh, man, one of them finally figured me out. <laughs> All right, John, you got another question for me? Not really. I'm still stuck inside of this existential loop that I can't get out of. The whole problem with obsessive thinking, Hank, is that it, it takes the form of these like ever-tightening spirals from which there is no freedom until suddenly it does just go away. And you're like, huh, that was weird. Anyway, yeah, Hank, I have a question. This question comes okay. from Bella, who writes, Dear John and Hank, my brother makes me listen to your podcast on the way to school every day, and although I try very hard not to, I started to like it. Though my brother <laughs> claims I am now a nerd fighter, I refuse to accept a title I do not understand. Do nerd fighters fight nerds, fight for the term nerds, or are they nerds that fight? My brother says he thinks nerds that fight, but fight what? You can't fight without having something to fight. That's just really bad slash weird dancing. <laughs> so just a great observation, Bella. That if you're fighting without having something or someone to fight, really, you're just dancing. <laughs> and, well, I don't know that it's necessarily bad weird dancing. Maybe you're a really good uh, no-person fight dancer. Yeah, it could be. It could be excellent dancing. The point is that it is not fighting. It's dancing. She makes a good point there. Um, well, I think that it's possible that John and I uh, are, you know, members of the community of nerd fighters, and all we are, in fact, doing is bad slash weird dancing uh, about things. <laughs> I think that might actually be that might be a really astute insight. Yes, but to answer your question, Bella, the idea is that uh, nerd fighters fight for nerds in the same way that freedom fighters ostensibly fight for freedom, um, and. It, 
as far as being a nerd fighter, uh, we've always said that if you think you might be a nerd fighter, you probably are one. There's no like initiation right or anything. It's just uh, one identity among many that you choose for yourself for the time that you consider yourself to be that. And uh, we would welcome you as a nerd fighter, but we also welcome if you don't consider yourself a nerd fighter. Yeah, you could just be a fan of the pod. Yeah, the only requirement is that you do have to uh, fight but not fight against anyone. So you do have to do the dance fighting. That is a, that is a technical requirement of joining our club. Right, right. Of, of Even of being a listener of the podcast. I expect that all of you uh, are doing weird dance fighting. Right now, yeah. No, wherever you are, uh, two things that you need to know. First, oh my God, it's burning. Second, <laughs> you better be dance fighting right now. I'm yeah, doing it. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm drinking my Diet Dr. Pepper and dance fighting in front of the microphone. I am likewise dance fighting. All right, Hank, should we move on to another question? I don't even believe you, by the way. It, I, your, your dancing is too... Uh, my dancing is very subtle. You know, it's something I do primarily from the elbow to the fingertip. Your dancing is a full body thing. So there's no way you could be doing it in, in front of a microphone. Oh, I... But I could keep, like, I have an excellent body isolation, so I could keep my head perfectly still while moving my the rest of my body vigorously, which is what I'm doing right now. I mean, I would love to see that dance in real life, the head still body <laughs> vigorously moving dance. <laughs> All right, this question is from Megan. She asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm pretty new to the podcast, but a long-term fan of the Vlogbrothers, so I have been binging on all the old episodes to catch up. I have a long-term history of talking nonsense in my sleep. My boyfriend recently told me that I have been talking about Mars in my sleep, and I attribute that to the pod. Do you have any dubious advice for how to stop talking in my sleep? No, I do not. Why would I make you stop? This sounds great. No, I, talking in your sleep is a dangerous, dangerous business, Hank, because you could say something that's true uh, and secret. Ah, mm. So you definitely don't want to talk in your sleep. Unfortunately, I know of no way to prevent yourself from talking in your sleep except to take um, Ambien, which does seem to work, at least no. for me, mm. but not a great long-term solution. Yeah. I, I think, I think that uh, as long as you're just talking about Mars in your sleep, there's no problem. So make sure that you just continue to talk just about Mars. The only way you can do that is to think a lot about Mars, which is, you know, obviously a wonderful thing to do anyway. And then have uh, have your boyfriend take notes on the things that you're saying about Mars and uh, send them to us. We'd be interested to hear. All right, Hank, we have another question. Uh, this one is from Robin, who writes, Dear John and Hank, my name is Robin. Stop trying to be Ryan, Robin. <laughs> my name is Robin, and I'm the germ-conscious mother of a two-year-old who absolutely loves going to the library and checking out stacks of books. As we sit and read through the books each week, I can't help but wonder if they are actually virus and bacteria-infested things that I'm bringing into my home and allowing my daughter to touch and enjoy. Am I being paranoid, or are other grimy kids leaving their germs on the books we're checking out great question robin and way to get to an issue that's right <laughs> at the heart of my personal experience with the world uh well uh, you aren't being paranoid robin those books are indeed covered in viruses and bacteria the good news is so is everything else and you're fine yeah the nice thing about books is that at least you're learning something while getting sick instead of just getting sick <laughs> Well, uh, let's say let's say that the world is alive with a thin film of beautiful and invisible organisms, uh, and they almost never kill you. 
So that's good. Right. Now, one thing I would say about this, actually, is there was a study done recently that a pretty, pretty robust study that followed kids who uh, went to daycare starting at 12 weeks of age and kids who stayed home. Uh, it followed them through primary school. And one of the findings was that kids who go to daycare do get sick more often during the preschool years um, than kids who stay home either with their parents or with a nanny. However, over the course of the entirety of the study to the end of primary school, the kids got sick an approximately equal amount because the kids who went to uh because the kids who stayed home just got sick more in elementary school. So in the end, I don't think there is any way, you know, wash your hands, obviously, encourage your kids to wash their hands, use hand sanitizer if you, if you want to. But in the end, there's no way to prevent your kids from getting colds and flus. It's just part of growing up. And it's actually an important part of being a kid. Yes. We have, uh, we have powerful and amazing immune systems. If you want to learn about those, you can watch Crash Course biology my god hank is with the shilling today i wonder where you can get high quality active wear hank maybe at dftba.com it's possible dftba.com well for all of your high quality active wear needs <laughs> oh man i don't even want to i don't even want to do the podcast with you if you're going to be a sellout <laughs> all right let's move on then i apologize deep deep apologies we have another question this one's from ben who asks dear hank and john my name is ben and i ben am having a difficult time determining whether or not the amount of paper towels given to me by the paper towel dispenser in bathrooms is enough to fully dry my moistened <laughs> hands please reply by podcast well first off ben i'm gonna say the same thing to you that i said to robin stop trying to be ryan there's only one ryan and his name is ryan that's right uh second as an owner of a of a building i was surprised to discover that the uh the the owner of the building uh, determines how much paper towel comes out of the paper towel dispenser there's a setting on it that lets you do that and you could be like tiny amount or huge big sheet uh you can usually uh, stop it if you're like, hey, uh, that's enough paper towel just by ripping it off and the machine will be like, okay, you got enough. Um, but sometimes they do like these like tiny little sheets and I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I kind of need more than that. Uh, there's a great video on the internet about how to properly dry your hands. Yeah, by which Joe is Smith. Like, like fast. Like it turns out that yep. drying your hands is a really important part of washing your hands because wet hands uh, have more bacteria that stick to them. So it's best to dry them as quickly as possible after washing them. Um, and, uh, and the most efficient way to do it, uh, turns out to be sh to quick, like shake them dry, like 12 times. Uh, and that gets off like the vast majority of the water and then, uh, and then use a, a small piece of paper towel folded over. And when you fold it over, this, uh, increases, a, a capillary action that will pull more water off of your hands more quickly. Um, and there's a video that you can watch. It's quite short. Uh, about that. that yeah, it's a yes, TED it's Talk, a TED actually. Talk. It's about four minutes and 30 seconds long, and it's this brilliant guy, Joe Smith, who tells you how to use exactly one paper towel while getting your hands entirely dry. And of all the videos I've spent four minutes and 30 seconds watching, it is the one that probably has had the biggest impact on my life because ever since then I have only used one paper towel and I've gotten my hands completely dry. And it's a game changer. It is, it is. I, I'm not gonna disagree with you, John, uh, you know. We're gonna put the video up on the Patreon so everybody can check it out, patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. I apologize for the shilling. <laughs> But you don't have to give to, to look that at the video. Correct. You can just go to patreon.com slash Yeah, all the stuff, all that stuff's open, open to the publics. Uh, you got another question for us? 
It's your turn. Speaking of bathrooms, Hank, we have a question from Emma who writes, Dear John and Hank, if someone knocks on the bathroom door, what is the least awkward way to let them know the bathroom (laughs) is occupied? (laughs) This is a great question because... It's such Usually, a great question because we have all been in the situation where like somebody knocks on the door and then you don't know what to say. Sometimes I say, I'm in yeah, here. Yeah. Sometimes I inexplicably speak Spanish and say, Occupado. You know what? I, I almost I almost <laughs> always say, and this is awful. I almost always say, just a sec. And then it's like, but no, no, not just a sec. <laughs> Which might be a false the, promise. I mean, you need to, there are times when, when just a sec is factually oh yeah, no, Almost always. As soon as I say just a sec, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, who am I kidding? It is not going to be just a sec. <laughs> it is going to be many secs. Uh, and yeah, and then I, but then you can't say that. You can't be like, just a sec, by which I mean probably about four minutes. So, Hank, in the same way that we have established a rule for proper armrest usage in movie theaters and on airplanes, I think this is the moment. You know, we have a chance to really affect culture here. I may not believe, <laughs> I may not believe in free will, but I do believe that a group of committed people working together can come up with one word or phrase. To express, I am in this stall of the bathroom that you are attempting to occupy. Yeah, I mean, really, all all you have to say is anything. They know that you're there. So you could just be like, ah! Yeah, but you don't want to say that because then people will be like, <laughs> well, that was an odd encounter. Right? You want to have something where it's just a kind of a universal, okay, I got it. It. You want to have, basically, you want to have, ah, that's... An, a socially acceptable phrase. That's why I'm quite fond of occupado. But what if what if <laughs> what if um, you want to convey more information than that? If you like, you want to if if you do if you are in fact just washing up and you're about to be out, you could just you could say just a sec. But if it's gonna be a while, you could be like uh, four minutes or oh. Uh, just it'll be a bit. <laughs> I'll be in here for a bit longer. I think four minutes is a terrible idea. I think four. I, I still like occupado because I think it's. I think it's. I think it's like a universal language. <laughs> Everybody knows what occupado means. Oh man! If only like why don't all bathroom doors have those locks that when you lock them it shows whether there's somebody in there. It's a, a, a physical mechanism that's like occupied and it's done. That's probably an expense issue. So. To to summarize, Emma, Hank and I are struggling uh, between two competing ways of saying I am inside of this bathroom. One is to shout occupado. The other is to shout four minutes or or two minutes or eight minutes or whatever you think is appropriate. Um, I, what I like about the not shouting a number of minutes is that then you aren't making a potentially false promise, Right. All I can say for sure in this messed up, crazy world is that right now I am in the bathroom. I have no real way of knowing if I'm going to be in there forever, <laughs> frankly. Uh, once, you, once you read Sapiens, you'll agree with me. Uh, I might be in the bathroom for 30 seconds. I might very well die inside of it. So I feel like saying occupado is just a way of saying, like, I am describing the current situation. Right. right. Okay. Uh, I... I uh... I'll, I can get behind Occupado unless I hear a better, unless I hear better from someone. You can always uh, send us some tweets at uh, Hank Green or John Green. 
uh, with the hashtag Dear Hank and John if you have a better suggestion than Occupado. All right. We've got another question. This one's from Scott. Scott asks, Dear Hank and John, I have had a nagging fear about money lately. Purchasing anything has left me feeling stressed out, even though I'm out of college, have good income, and graciously am not in crippling debt. And I feel like I'm becoming obsessed with saving money. Maybe it's my unconscious desire to fund the Wimbledon Stadium or a fear that I won't have enough money to survive the apocalypse, which is very irrational since currency probably won't be accepted then. How can I learn to relax and not let my spending be a source of anxiety? This is an interesting question, Hank, because I think most of us struggle more with uh, saving than with spending. Um, You know, I think it's really, really important to uh, save money, especially when you're young. I I really believe that even if you don't have a lot of income, if you can save Mm -hmm. even very small amounts of money in your 20s, it makes a massive, massive difference. Uh, much later in your life, especially after retirement. Um, But there are people who begin to treat saving sort of uh, obsessively and become very anxious about trying to save more and more and more money. And just like anything, it's never enough. Um, I don't have a great solution for this. I think that it's uh, better than the spending problem, but I don't (laughs) want to minimize it because I think it is still a problem. Yeah, I actually... This is something that I struggle with. Um, it is a, it, it's it's less now, but I like anytime I, uh, you know, as a younger person, when I was making a significant purchase, I would get sweaty, my chest would clench up, um, especially right afterward, um, and I would feel like 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 you know like a significant amount of anxiety, which is pretty unusual for me. But this is a thing that I I have experienced anxiety about. I still do, though generally with business spending than with personal spending now. Um and uh and and it it is so so that is it is an anxiety. Um and things like that tend to get better with experience. Of course, don't run out and like have a lot of spending experiences just to get over your anxiety because that could have other negative consequences. But uh, my my strategy, and this is just my strategy uh, among many strategies, is to uh, is to think about it economically and in a in sort of a analytical businessy way of the return on the investment of the thing that I'm spending. Um, and this is called an ROI analysis. It's a thing that you do in business. So if I'm if I'm getting a new computer, I I have always had this feeling when getting new computers. Even now, I, I'm like, ugh. But if I think about like, okay, my current computer is wasting my time because it is broken, it is slow, and and fixing it would take a lot of my time. Getting a new one is the value that I am spending money on is the time that it's going to free up. So the value when I'm buying a new car, like what's the value there? The value when I'm uh, getting gasoline, what's the value there? Getting car insurance or getting health insurance, um, like under like or buying healthier food what's like like the value of being a healthier person is worth the money that i'm spending understanding the value transaction that's happening helps me get over this um this hurdle of like always having felt weird about money and about spending money and always knowing that like that is a like it is a thing that you can't undo um, and, and it is it is uh, it is money that you can't get back, which is for me often the source of the anxiety. I think um, also probably just a weird relationship that I have with money for lots of different reasons. Um, you know, the other thing you can do, Hank, is um, that I would suggest is that you can have a brother who steals your money and spends it. Um, <laughs> yeah, then you know. I feel like that's been useful for you over the years. Really, starting when I was about fourteen and Hank was eleven, I noticed that Hank had 
hundreds and hundreds of dollars that he'd saved over the years from never having spent any money. And I liked spending money, so I didn't have any money. And I thought, well, that's not fair that Hank has, you know, $400 (laughs) that he's rolled up into uh, these these tiny tight bills that he's then stuffed inside of his soccer participation trophies. And... I just remember thinking it's just it's yeah. just not fair, you know, that Hank has all of this money and that I have none. And I would complain to my parents about it and they would be like, but you we gave you the same amount of money. It's just that you spent it and Hank saved it. And I was like, right, right. I understand that. But the point is that he now has money and I now don't like we can't do anything about what happened in the past. <laughs> The current right. situation is that there is this extreme unfairness of Hank having hundreds of dollars stuffed into uh, soccer participation trophies that he has no, there is no way that Hank is ever going to spend any of that money. I, I mean, the truth is, Hank still hasn't spent that money. I bet if you go to his childhood <laughs> soccer trophies and you unscrew them, you'll find a no. bunch of $10 bills wadded no. up in there. And uh, and so I started spending Hank's money. And let me tell you, it felt great. Um, it, it wasn't even really stealing because, again, it was a question of it being our money that Hank had just failed to spend. Uh, so what, what John is saying is it's important to note that you can't take it with you. Sometimes you can't even take it with you to middle school. <laughs> well, OK, all of that noted it uh, when I was in college. One summer, you decided that I didn't need my baseball cards anymore, and you sold them all on eBay. Uh, well, you did just leave them home. Yeah, but you sold them on eBay, and then you saved the money and never gave it to me. So, I, I think I don't, we're even. I don't remember that. I don't know if the, I don't know if that's the thing that happened. That is absolutely a thing that happened. That is one hundred percent. I mean, we can call mom and dad if you want, but that is one hundred percent a thing that happened. Um. You sold my baseball cards just as surely as Tuggle is not dead. (laughs) All right, let's move on to another question then. This one's from Ari, who asks, Dear Hank and John, do you have any dubious advice on how to enjoy physical activity? I've been going to the gym more lately, but the thing is, I hate it. Uh, Listening to your podcast helps pass the time, but it's still not enough to make it remotely enjoyable. How can I make exercising more fun? Well, Ari, podcasts are my only trick. So, John... (laughs) Hank, to be honest, I don't even find podcasts adequately distracting because there's a lot of dead air in podcasts when I can hear uh, my labored breathing. And during that time, I become aware that I'm inside of a, you know, a slowly decaying vessel. And that's very (laughs) distressing to me. So I usually just listen to music. All I can say is that in my mind, at least, the benefits of exercise are back ended. Like the benefits of exercise mostly come you know, 10 or 12 or 16 weeks into the process. Uh, And for me, at least, once that happens, it gets way more fun. But you've got to put in all of that time before it happens. I I have also heard uh, people who uh, are, you know, experts in this saying things like, you have to trick yourself as if you are a dog. So give yourself rewards for doing a thing that you don't like doing. and then you will start to like them and and not really know why. So do your best to make going to the gym some kind of positive experience. And I do not know how to do that. But, you know, if 
give yourself some kind of uh, chew toy or playtime or doggy biscuit that makes that will make it feel as if it is a positive thing in your life. Uh, I don't I don't know how to actually do that. That is a, a piece of advice I've heard from other people and not been able to implement in my own life. So I've got another question, if that's okay with you, John. No, 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 it's not okay because I would just like to uh, say a word from our sponsors. Today's podcast is brought to you by <laughs> tricking yourself like a dog, tricking yourself like you would a dog. I don't really <laughs> tricking tricking yourself like you would a dog the fastest way to enjoy exercise. This podcast is also brought to you by Weird Slash Bad Dance Fighting. Weird Slash Bad Dance Fighting. It's uh it's the only thing that you're allowed to do while you're listening to Dear Hank and John and it's also probably exercise kind of. So good. <laughs> This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt. I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it. So it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. <laughs> This has just been such a funny podcast. We should do this more often. <laughs> uh, okay, now you can get to your other question. Hank. All right, this one's from Nana, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I recently started thinking about how we, as humans, never stop growing and changing. Every year, every decade, every century, we surpass unimaginable milestones that are simply incredible to witness. What makes me sad, though, is that I will know what existed before me, but I will never truly know what will exist after me. I think of how awestruck Jane Austen would have been if she had had a chance to look into the world where the world is today or Mahatma Gandhi or Isaac Newton or anyone else how do I overcome or manage this gloominess caused by the by the unknown slash unknowable I would I would say we actually don't know that much about the past you know like there's 2.5 million years of hominid history and we only know anything about like the last 10,000 years of it and we only know much about like the last three or four hundred years of it. And if you look outside the, the realm of the like most noted or, or, or famous people, the people who had access to the, the kind of power to tell their own stories, we really only know the history of like the last 150, 200 years at the most. So 
uh, I I actually think that we're we're living in a kind of a on a weird island mm-hmm. where we don't know very much about what human life was like on a day to day basis uh, before relatively recently, and of course we know nothing about what it will look like in the future. But we we don't know what hunter gatherers were like. We don't know much about. Um, what life was like in early agriculturalist communities. I would say that, uh, I would, I would say that ultimately we kind of only know ourselves. You yeah. Know? I, uh, I think that this is one of the sad things about death, John, and, and not just on a macro scale, but on, on a micro scale, um, you know, when you die, if you die in the sort of correct order, that the sad thing will be that you will never get to see, uh, you know, who your grandchildren fall in love with and what they become and, and who, the, you know, like you lose, you don't get to find out all the things about the people that you love that you wish you could find out. It just, it ends and it's a super bummer. And the fact that you're thinking about this, Nana, on a, you know, a humanity-wide scale means that you believe in humanity and you have a lot of interest in, uh, in, in faith in humanity and that's good. And this is a side effect of that feeling of, of, you know, appreciating all of the things that humans have come together to create over the years that have made your life better and, uh, and, and appreciating that and not, and knowing that there will be things that will come after that you won't know about that. It's a, it's a symptom of, you know, your appreciation for the work of other people and, and a symptom of the fact that, uh, we're all going to die and it's a bit of a bummer. There's not really much to do about it though. Uh, except to recognize that it comes from, mostly from good places. It's a bit of a bummer, but on the other hand, to me, at least there's something beautiful about the fact that we're all sort of collaborators in this massive sprawling story and that we're going to be in the middle of it. I don't want to be at the end of the human story, you know, like I don't want my life uh, no, to no, be yes. like That'll the be last <laughs> human life. I want to be in the middle of the story and I want to try to, you know, in my infinitesimal way, shape the story so that it makes it more possible for it to go on longer and better for as many people as possible. So in a way, it's good news. I, I have a really quick question from Ray who asks, Dear Hank and John, in the past, John, you have okayed tattoos inspired by your books so long as they are not somebody's first tattoo. Hank, do you have a similar request for tattoos inspired by the things that you create? I'm getting a Hanklerfish tattoo next month, and I want to know your thoughts. Love from your brother with the last name of another color, Ray Brown. Uh, yeah, I don't, it's your body, man. Do whatever you want. That's how I feel. I think that's great. Does that work? Uh, the only reason I'm concerned about people getting a, their first tattoo uh, with a quote from my books or something is I just worry that later they'll regret it. But if it's a second tattoo, I somehow feel that I've been absolved. But you're right. <laughs> it's not my body. So why am I trying to intervene? Indeed. Adam writes, Dear John and Hank, if nothing sticks to Teflon, how do they get Teflon to stick to a pan? All right. I'm not. I'm going to do this and not... I assume that John doesn't have much to say on the subject. Correct. All right. Teflon is a chemical. It's actually, it's a brand name for a chemical. And that chemical is basically a carbon chain with, so every carbon is bonded to two other carbons. So that makes the chain. Um, and then on, you know, sort of the top and bottom of the chain, it's bonded to fluorines. And fluorines uh, love to bond to stuff. Uh, and carbon also loves to bond to stuff. So those that, that bond becomes very strong. Those electrons become very sort of uh, occupied with that bond. And they don't uh, interact with the rest of the world at all. They hate the rest of the world. They're super happy and never want to talk to anything, which is why uh, nothing sticks to it. So... You have that problem then. Uh, if if it doesn't want to stick to anything, how do you make it stick to the pan? 
they do chemistry on it. So uh, once you make this sort of Teflon coating, it will have sides. It will have a top and a bottom side. The top side is what's going to be facing the world, so you want that to remain all Teflon-y. The bottom side, you do chemistry on it uh, to make those fluorines go away. And when you do that, it actually gets super sticky because suddenly those carbons want to bond to stuff. Um, so you knock those fluorines off of the bottom layer of the Teflon. Uh, you do that either with, like, they, they really don't want to get knocked off. So you have to do pretty intense chemistry. You either, like, bombard it with high-energy plasma or, like, really strong reducing agents. And then those fluorines go away and the carbons want to bond to something else and they bond to whatever the pan is made of. And that's how that works. Thank you for the science question. It's been a while since I got to talk about science on the pod. I don't know why. More science questions, people. I don't actually know if we need more science questions. That was interesting, but I kept zoning in and out the way, almost like uh, I don't know. It was intense, Hank. It was intense for me. Well, you know, it's it's just, you know, Teflon is just another example of the tiny tiny changes that we make in our world uh, that make life better for everybody. And how to make Teflon stick to a pan? Uh, They had to figure that out. And who figured that out? Yeah, I don't know. Mr. Teflo? Probably not. (laughs) Somebody. Somebody who mattered to the world. Well, I think it's great. I think it's beautiful. Hank, is there any news from Mars this week? Oh, is there ever? Uh, there's always news from Mars, John. It's just I have to pick which which bit to cover. Um, so this week, 40 people have been selected from over 200,000 applicants to be finalists in the quest to die on Mars. Mars One uh, <laughs> is a ambitious and probably impossible plan to send people on a one-way trip to Mars, and they will eventually, from that pool of 40 people, select 26 people that they want to send, uh, sort of four people at a time, uh, and it's it's a uh, Mars One is one of several existing plans right now to get humans on the surface of Mars. In my opinion, if you lined those those uh, projects out from most to least likely, Mars One would be at the bottom of the list. But but still interesting, still a thing that they're trying to do. Um, and uh, and they want to build a permanent colony on Mars, so it would be a one way trip. And hopefully those people would live their natural lifespans on Mars and not get killed by Mars, which is pretty likely. But uh, they would live their natural lifespans on Mars and even maybe have children on Mars and raise generations on Mars and start the process of having there be a sort of second second humanity out there. Um, and uh, they plan to partially fund this effort with a reality TV show, and they want to use SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket to get to the Red Planet. Uh, so they're not like developing any of their own technology. They're just trying to figure out how to fund it, which I just I don't understand how it's going to work. But it is interesting to me. And they do have these people who have uh, you know are talking about like why they are people who. Uh, you know, like they see this as a thing that they want to do with their lives. And I find that interesting and cool uh, to hear these people talk about it. It's not a choice that I would make, but it is interesting to hear people talk about it. Um, and of course, SpaceX, uh, which is making the Falcon Heavy rocket, has its own plans, or Elon Musk at least does, to send humans to Mars and actually get them back. But I'm not going to judge. Uh, let's send people to Mars. I'm into that. Let's let's. And investigate possibilities. I I myself would want to die on Earth. I know, John. I know, but not in I Titusville. Just, I just want it to be clear in case, like, in case I happen to not die on Earth, I just want the world to know that was not my <laughs> wish. All right, Hank. The news from AFC Wimbledon is that, as you know, AFC Wimbledon is now a third-tier English soccer team. Uh, this is both an opportunity 
uh, in that we find ourselves in the third tier and a massive problem in that, uh, you know, we would like to stay there. Uh, and AFC Wimbledon, which used to have the smallest stadium in League Two, now has the smallest stadium in League One. Um, as a result, uh, Wimbledon fans are raising money uh, for the playing budget through the We Are Wimbledon Fund. Uh, you can you can learn more about it at wearewimbledonfund.com. Basically, uh, it's a trust that's set up to uh, increase the playing budget. Uh, it's been working for several years, but because the club is owned entirely by its fans, uh, money for the playing budget and stuff has to come primarily from its fans. Uh, so they've been raising money. And in other, in, in more personal news, last week was my daughter's birthday. And as is the case with every birthday, AFC Wimbledon sent her a card signed by a bunch of players. <laughs> and most adorably, there was a long letter in it that was really, really thoughtful uh, about how great a season it's been. As I read the letter to Alice, she was, of course, just enraptured by it. Uh, <laughs> but my favorite part of the letter was was when they were like, so we're in the playoff final. Uh, I waited as long as I could to send this letter, but in order for it to arrive by your birthday, I had to send it before I found out what happened. So hopefully we won. <laughs> <laughs> um, but every member of the Don's Junior Trust, uh, which, it, by the way, it only costs... Uh, uh, 10 pounds per year and you get a birthday card signed by the players. Um, so that's like $18 or something. Uh, every member of the Don's Junior Trust gets a birthday card and uh, you can also join the trust if you want, uh, thedonstrust.org if you want to become a member of a, a, an owner of AFC Wimbledon, like me and Hank against his will and my children and my wife and Hank's <laughs> wife against her will. Um, you can become a member of the Don's Trust at thedonstrust.org uh, for adults uh, that is people over the age of 16 or actually people at the age of 21 um it's uh 25 pounds per year so around 42 dollars uh and i'll tell you what it's the best 42 dollars you'll ever spend it's an amazing organization it's so fun to be a part of it and uh yeah i want to encourage people to become owners of afc wimbledon all right thank you john we have one note before we get to what we learned today from katie who says I am a former pizzeria employee hoping to solve the slice versus pizza piece debate. All slices of pizza, all slices are pieces of pizza, but not all pieces are slices. A slice refers to a individually purchased piece of pizza. If you would like to get a whole pie, a cut off of that would be referred to a piece. Hope that clears things up. Thanks for all of the work you do. I don't know. I'm not convinced. I don't know. I'm not sold. I'm not 100% sold on that, although I am not a former pizzeria employee, so Katie has more authority on this topic than I mm -hmm, do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So what did we learn today, John? Well, we learned that there are a bunch of people who want to die on Mars, but who probably won't. We learned that it would be a total bummer, like a super bummer, to know how the human story ends because it would mean that you were the last human. So that's actually worse <laughs> than not knowing. <laughs> You know, it's funny. When you phrase it that way, I don't actually seem that optimistic. <laughs> we learned that when you're fighting but don't have an opponent, you're actually just dancing. Just weird bad dancing. And, of course, we learned that if you were in the bathroom and someone would like to be in the bathroom you are in, John would like you to just shout out, Occupado! Occupado! The thing happened. Just a sec. Not, though. Not just a sec. Just don't say, don't, don't, don't make false promises. If anything, maybe you should just <laughs> under-promise so you can just say, like, just 12 minutes. 
<laughs> you should probably. And then when go... you come out three minutes later, they'll be like, "What a wonderful turn of events!" Yeah. <laughs> you should probably go next door to a different restaurant. <laughs> All right, John. Thank you for being on a podcast with me. It's always a pleasure. Oh, it's, it's fun for me as well. Our podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Claudia Morales is our intern. We get help with questions from Rosiana Hulse-Rojas. Our theme music is by Gunnarola. You can email us your questions, concerns, or complaints at hankandjohn at gmail.com. Or you can just go to the Twitter where uh, I am John Green. Hank is Hank Green. You can use the hashtag Dear Hank and John. You can also follow us on our preferred social media Snapchat where Hank is Hank G-R-E and I am John Green's naps. John Green, he just taking naps. Thank you, everybody. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to, to be, be awesome. awesome.